Good morning. How are you? People were asked to complete the sentence, in a perfect world. Here were some of the answers. In a perfect world, chocolate would have no calories. In a perfect world, procrastination would be honored as a virtue. In a perfect world, teenagers would rather clean their rooms than talk on the phone. In a perfect world, men would go through labor. In a perfect world, children would not develop vocal cords until they moved away from home. And in a perfect world, politicians would pay us taxes. Now, unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. And even if we did, we are imperfect people. And so we need the fourth characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit, which is patience in an imperfect world. Are you patient? When you go into Schnooks to grab a couple items and you go to check out and you get in the 12-item or less line and you see the woman in front of you has a full cart of groceries... Does your blood pressure go up? When you get to the cashier and it says cash only and she pulls out her checkbook, do you grind your teeth and bite your tongue? I have to admit, this is a convicting topic because I do not like to wait. At Christmas time, I'm never patient with my gifts because I take them all back. And I don't take them back the week after Christmas because the lines are too long. I wait till February to take them back. When I come to a busy road and I need to turn left, you know what I do? I turn right just to keep moving, just so I don't feel like I'm waiting for something. One of my pet peeves is left lane drivers on the interstate. Amen? Thank you. It's not the picnic lane, it's the passing lane. So you come up and they're camped in the left lane going 65 miles an hour. I'm having a great day. Suddenly I come up on this person. And I'm impatient. You know, I I have this feeling, um, in fact, that's when I understand road rage. That's why I don't carry a concealed weapon. But I come up and I have these thoughts, I'll pass them on the right, then I'll pull over and I'll go 60 in front of them and show them how that feels. Lisa and I had breakfast at a place in St. Louis on the 4th of July. And we sat down and and they took our order and brought us coffee. And we sat there, and we sat there, and we sat there. Twice I got up and got the coffee thing myself and poured us more coffee. And we actually timed it. It took an hour for us to get an omelet and French toast. I think God was just prepping me for this message. I kept thinking this was going to be candid camera, and somebody was going to come out and make it all a joke. I don't like to wait. 
I wish I was more like the little boy who was standing in the department store at the bottom of the escalator watching the rail go around. And a salesman came up and said, son, are you lost? And he said, no, I'm just waiting for my gum to come back. Patience is not necessarily something we like to have to have, but it's absolutely mandatory in our Christian life. And the Bible talks about three areas where you and I need patience, and James spells out those three areas in James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11, and I just want to touch on them today. First of all is patience with the divine program. Look at verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. For an illustration of patience, James points to a farmer. A farmer breaks up the ground, he removes the rocks, he pulls out the weeds, he plants the seed, and then he waits. He waits for the rains to come from heaven. He waits for that crop to develop. The farmer has to be patient because he's depending on God's program. He is depending on God's schedule and God's calendar. And the same is true of every one of us. We spend a lot of time in the waiting room. We wait to get married. We wait for children. We wait for an illness to pass. We wait for a broken bone to heal. We wait for a dream to happen. And ultimately, we wait for the Lord Jesus to return. And it all requires patience. And there are no shortcuts in God's program. Abraham learned that the hard way. God came to Abraham when he was about 75 years old, and he said, you're going to have a son. Nothing happened for about 10 years, and Abraham got impatient. And so to hurry God along, he had a child with Hagar, Sarah's maid. And he thought, this will help God. Did God come and say, thanks a lot, Abraham. I was having trouble pulling that off. No. He had a son whose name was Ishmael, who became the father of the Ishmaelites and ultimately the Midianites, who were at war with Israel, in fact, still are today, because he said, I'll take a shortcut. God made him wait about 14 more years, and then he finally gave him the promised son, Isaac. You see, you cannot rush God's program. If you do, you create more problems. In fact, the ability to wait is a sign of maturity. If you've been on a long trip with little kids, what do they always say? When are we going to get there? Why? Because they're kids. They're immature. If you take an adult couple with you, they won't ask that question. And if they do, don't take them again. (laughs) That would be irritating. Why not? They're, They're mature. Patience is a sign of maturity. 
1897, there was a man by the name of Pearl Waite, W-A-I-T. I have a problem with both his names. Pearl Waite. He was a construction worker who dabbled in patent medicines and sold them door to door. One day he was in the kitchen with his wife, and an idea hit him to mix fruit flavor and granulated gelatin. So he asked his wife to make up a batch, so she took granulated gelatin and fruit flavoring, mixed it together, put it on ice, it came out in a gel, and it tasted wonderful. She said, let's call it Jell-O. He said, great, this may be the, the, the thing that I finally create where I make a killing. So he took his jello and he did the only thing he knew how to do. He went door to door selling jello. Well, he became impatient. And after two years in 1899, he sold all the rights to jello to a man by the name of Orator Woodward for $450. Orator Woodward took his package called jello, and in eight short years, he turned a $450 investment into a one million a year business. And today, over 100 years later, 1.1 million boxes of Jell-O are sold every day in the United States. But you know what? None of Pearl Waite's relatives get one single penny because Waite couldn't wait. If Waite had waited, he'd be a wealthy Waite. Let me tell you something. If you're going to get the blessings that God has planned for you, you're going to have to learn to wait. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31 says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. We need to learn patience with the divine program. Second area is patience with difficult people. Look at verse 9 of chapter 5. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Do you have people in your life that test your patience? that make you late, that make you wait, that don't remember what you told them. It was a rainy day, and so the first grade teacher stopped several minutes before the final bell so she'd have time to sit on the floor and put galoshes on all 34 of the children. She struggled and strained and pushed and finally got the first pair of galoshes on the first little girl. After she got them on, that little girl looked up at her and said, these are not my galoshes. So she struggled and strained and pulled them off, and the little girl said, they're my sisters, and she lets me wear them. <laughs> People can test your patience. In fact, the Greek word for patience is macrothumai. Macro means long, thumai means heat. So this word literally means to have a long fuse. 
It's the opposite of a quick temper. It describes someone who is slow to get angry. Someone who doesn't boil over with anger easily. Now, it doesn't mean no fuse. You see, getting angry is not wrong. In fact, the capacity to get angry is God-given. And there are certain things in life that should make you angry. When you hear about a little four-year-old boy who is taken from his home and sexually abused, you need to get angry about that. When you hear about Jerry Sandusky and all the things he did to little boys over his life, it should make you furious inside. Patience is not passivity. It's not indifference. It's not apathy. Patience doesn't mean you never get angry. In fact, if you don't get angry, you're a vegetable. If you don't get angry, you're a sociopath. We need to get angry about what is righteous indignation. Does God ever get angry? Absolutely. In fact, if you look up the word anger in your concordance, you'll find that most of the time it's used of God. The anger of the Lord. Did Jesus ever get angry? Absolutely. He got so angry, he ran the money changers out of the temple. But you see, God has a long fuse. And in Exodus 34, 6, it says of him, he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. It's okay to be angry, but we're to have a slow anger. We're to have a long fuse. Now, let me give you some ways to have a longer fuse this morning. Let me talk to you about how you can lengthen your anger fuse. And if you don't need to hear this, please don't stare at someone who does. Number one, restrain your temper. Restrain your temper. You say, well, I if I could restrain my temper, I would, but I can't do that. I'm Irish. I've got a bad temper. I, I can't control my temper. Yes, you can Listen to Proverbs 29.11. It says, A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Did you get that? God has given you the capacity to hold back your temper. See, you have more control than you think you have. And some of us would see that if we'd pay attention. Because sometimes you're at home and you're upset with your kids, you're angry at your wife, you start raising your voice and, and you start yelling and then the phone rings and you go pick it up and say, hello, how are you? Oh, I'm having a wonderful day. What did you just do? You controlled your temper. So you have the capacity to control your temper. The key is it's easier to restrain it when it's warming up than when it gets really hot. It's difficult to control anger when you're angry. So we need to control it at the outset. We need to restrain that temper. And then the second way to lengthen your fuse is to reckon the cost. Having a short fuse is a little thing that causes big problems. And so it's important that you reckon the cost of anger in your life. Let me tell you some areas where it costs you. Number one, it costs you in your thoughts. 
Proverbs 14.29 says, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. If you want to find a person with great understanding, don't look at how long his list of titles are. Don't look at how long his list of degrees are. Don't look at how long his list of credentials are. Look at how long his fuse is. Because the Bible says patience is a sign of great understanding. And a person who is impatient, a person who is quick-tempered, lacks understanding. You ever get angry? And you think later, when I was angry, why did I say that? What was I thinking? Well, when you get angry, you get irrational, and your mouth opens. And things come out, and you say, I should have never said that. But my See, anger kills brain cells. And it will cost you your thoughts when you allow yourself to be angry. Second, it will cost you your actions. Proverbs 14, 17 says, A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. When you're angry, you don't act right. Have you ever noticed how people act when they're angry? They do some pretty stupid things. Walk in somebody's house and there's a hole in the wall. What happened? I got angry. Get angry, you punch a wall. You get angry, you break something. Anger causes you to do things. It costs you your actions. Jerry Springer has created a whole popular show on that. Let's get people on this show, make them angry, and then we'll watch all the stupid things they do. King Saul in 1 Samuel 20, 33, got so angry he threw his spear at his son at the dinner table. You see, if you don't control your temper, your temper will control you. In fact, Proverbs 29.22 says, A hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. If you want to do everything wrong, just walk around with a hot temper. So it costs you your thoughts. It costs you your actions. Thirdly, it costs you your identity. Listen to this verse. Ecclesiastes 7.9. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, For anger resides in the bosom of fools. Did you get that? Anger is not some peripheral thing in your life. It resides in your bosom. And when you've got anger in your bosom, who are you? Well, this verse says it resides in the bosom of fools. So you see, how you deal with anger determines who you are. It determines your identity. It's the distinguishing mark, the distinguishing difference between a wise man and a fool. Costs you your thoughts, costs you your actions, costs you your identity. Fourthly, it costs you your relationships with other people. Proverbs 15, 18 says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Anger 
causes fights. It destroys relationships. And if you're a father here, you can control your kids with anger. It'll work short term. But long term, it will destroy relationships. And then a fifth thing it costs you, if all of that isn't enough, it costs you your relationship with God. Because James says in James chapter 1 and verse 20, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. When your temper is controlling you, God is not. So uncontrolled anger is no light matter. And we need to sit down and reckon the costs. It cost me my thoughts. It cost me my actions. It cost me my identity. I am labeled as a fool. It cost me my relationship with others. And it cost me my relationship with God. Well, let's move to the third way to lengthen your fuse. And that is reflect before you react. If you're going to control your temper, you have to stop reacting and start reflecting. That's what James was talking about in that classic verse in chapter 1 and verse 19 when he says, let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. The key to being slow to anger is to be quicker to hear than you are to speak. You need to reflect before you react. Remember what Jesus did before he ran the money changers out of the temple? The Bible says he sat down and he made a whip. He sat there. What was he doing? He was reflecting before he reacted. Now, some people tell you to count to ten. I want to give you a better suggestion. I want you to reflect on why you're angry. Because a lot of times we're angry, but we're not really angry for the reason we think we're angry. And we're not even angry at the person we're being angry with. So we need to sit down and reflect on why am I getting angry. Let me give you some options. Number one is because you're hurt. And you hit your thumb with a hammer Sometimes you get angry. Why? Because you're hurt. But the same thing happens when you're hurt emotionally. Sometimes someone has hurt you emotionally and you're becoming angry out of the hurt that's inside you. If your husband just realized that your anniversary is the same day as his, you may be angry. That's because you're hurt. And hurting people hurt people. So if you're angry and you can trace it back to hurt, you need to reflect on that and realize that. I'll give you a second reason. That is frustration. When the weather gets into triple digits like this, guess what happens? People get more frustrated. Have you run into that? Sometimes you come home from work and you've had a frustrating time at work and you've got all kinds of problems at work and you come home and what do you do? You strike out at your kids. Why? They haven't done anything different. 
you have frustration based on something you haven't resolved at work. And before you strike out at your kids, you need to sit down and reflect and say, the reason my blood is boiling right now has nothing to do with my family. It has to do with frustration somewhere else in my life. Hurt, frustration, let me give you a third one. Fear. You back an animal into a corner, eventually it's going to strike out at you. Why? Out of fear. Saul was angry with David. Why was he angry with David? Because he was afraid he was going to lose his throne. It was fear-based anger. So you and I need to reflect before we react. And while you're reflecting, you need to ask yourself, is this anger coming because I'm hurt? Is it coming because I'm frustrated? Is it coming because I'm afraid? Or is it righteous indignation? And most of the time, you're going to find that it's based on one of those first three rather than being righteous indignation. I'll give you a fourth way to lengthen your fuse. And that is respond appropriately. How do you respond when you're angry? Well, I thought of at least four ways, and the first three don't work. Number one option is dismiss it. A lot of Christians do this. We say, well, it's not right to be angry, so I'll just deny I'm angry. And so we dismiss it. We deny it. You ever talk to somebody and you say, what's wrong? Oh, nothing. I can tell something. Nothing's wrong. Then why are you yelling? I'm not yelling. Ever do that? Ever hear that? Don't ignore anger. Don't pretend it doesn't exist. In fact, there's a great verse for you. This is This is free. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry. That's a command. I like that verse. Be angry. It's going to happen. Be angry and yet do not sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. There's a great principle. There are going to be times when I get angry. I don't want it to develop into sin. And the principle is I never let the sun go down on my anger. In other words, we're going to resolve it before we go to bed. Now, sometimes you may need to stay up all night. But don't let that sun go down on your anger because the next verse tells you why. When you do that, you give the devil an opportunity. What opportunity do you give him? Well, when you sit and stew in your anger, guess what happens? It simmers down to bitterness. When you have unresolved anger, the devil comes in and he turns that into a bitterness in your soul that is far harder to get out. So you see, dismissing anger may be the worst response that you can have. 
Because when you dismiss it and say it doesn't exist, you're not giving the other person even the opportunity to help resolve it. The only person you're giving an opportunity to is the devil who's going to make it worse. Option number two is suppress it. This is a shade different from number one. This is when you say, I know I'm angry, but I'm going to take that anger and I'm going to stuff it. I'm going to swallow it down inside. Trained counselors will tell you that the number one cause of depression is stuffed anger. You stuff it down inside and it comes out as depression. So a person who is saying, I'm so depressed, may actually be saying, I'm so angry inside. Option three is express it. That's when you let it all hang out. That's when you vent your anger, you blow up, you pout, you're sarcastic, you're cynical. Many secular psychiatrists and psychologists promote this as a solution to anger. You need to go off and just vent on somebody. They refer to it as the primal scream. They have therapy where you come in and just scream for an hour and then pay $70 for that. The idea is you've got this bucket of anger inside and what you need to do is just dump it out and then you'll be okay. It's kind of like spiritual vomiting. You know, after you vomit, you feel a little better. So you just say, okay, just vomit on somebody and it'll make you feel better. The problem is you don't have just a bucket of anger inside. You've got an ocean of anger inside. You've got a bottomless supply of anger inside. So you can't just dump that anger and go on because it doesn't work that way. Because outbursts of anger simply produce more outbursts of anger. So when you express your anger, you're not really subtracting it, you're multiplying it. So let me give you option four, and this is the right option. Confess it. See, when I reflect on why I'm angry, and I realize I'm angry because I'm hurt, or I'm angry because I'm frustrated, or I'm angry because I'm afraid, And when I realize that it's not justified, then I come and I confess it to God. I should never have gotten angry because this was based on something else. And not only should I confess it to God, but when I vomit on somebody else, I need to confess it to that other person. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Now let's talk about why I'm hurt. Let's talk about why I'm frustrated. Let's talk about why I'm afraid. Fifth way to lengthen your fuse is to reprogram your mind. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says, you are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, the way you think determines the way you act. Angry thoughts lead to angry actions. Belief controls behavior. And over and over again, we are being programmed by 
television and movies and the media to respond a certain way when you're angry. We are programmed that when you get angry, use a gun. When you get angry, cuss them out. When you get angry, seek revenge. And we need to reprogram our mind. We need to renew our mind with the Word of God so that we are no longer acting and reacting the way the world does, but we're going to be different because God has renewed us and He is transforming us into a new person. Sixth way to lengthen your fuse is realign yourself with patient people. Proverbs 22.24, mark this verse. Proverbs 22.24, Do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered man lest you learn his ways. Is anger contagious? Yes. It's highly infectious. And you will pick up the traits of the people you associate with. And so if you are serious about being a patient person, then you need to align yourself with people who are patient so that you see it modeled around you. And then the seventh way to lengthen your fuse is to rely on God. God has demonstrated to us just how patient he is with difficult people. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Aren't you thankful God has a long fuse? Some of us have tested that and tested that and tested that. And God never says, I'm done with you. He's patient, patient, patient. He's still waiting on some of you to come to repentance. And when we come to him, he not only shows us his patience, but he develops that patience inside of us. And that's why in Galatians 5.20, in the context of the fruit of the Spirit, it says one of the deeds of the flesh is outbursts of anger. When you are depending on yourself and you are relying on your flesh, guess what happens? Outbursts of anger. In contrast to that, the fruit of the Spirit is patience. That's what He produces inside of me and inside of you when we rely on Him. And then thirdly, third area we need patience is patience with demanding problems. Notice verse 10 of chapter 5. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. James points to the example of Job, which is the classic example of suffering and patience. What did Job experience? Destitution. He lost everything. He lost his oxen, donkeys, sheep, camels, all his possessions. The only thing we know he had was four servants when it was all over. Destitution. Secondly, death. His ten kids died in the same moment on the same day. Destitution, death, disease. He got cancerous boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. 
destitution, death, disease, desertion. His best friends showed up and and disowned him. His wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? So he experienced destitution, death, disease, and desertion. And I don't need to tell you that stacks up to be a formidable set of demanding problems. But James says you're not going to understand Job until you see the outcome. Did you see that word in the verse? Until you see the outcome, you're not going to understand how to be patient in demanding problems. And when you look at the outcome of Job's life, at the end of the book in Job 42.5, Job says this to God, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Before I got into these problems, I used to hear about you, God. I had my theology right. I could tell people about you. But when I went through these problems, it switched from hearing about God to seeing God face to face. And I came to know you in a way that I never knew you before. Why? Because he went through the problems. You see, Job teaches us that the greatest lessons of life don't come in the easy times. The greatest lessons of life come when you persevere through the hard times. And I know something about you today. And that is I know that you need to grasp this idea. Because I know something about everyone in this room today. And that is that you're going through problems. Because we all do. And if you're not in one today, you'll be in one tomorrow. So get ready for it. And the thing we need to learn is that problems are not meant to defeat you. They are not meant to depress you. They are not meant to discourage you. They are meant to develop you. They are not traps to drag you down. They are tools in the hand of God to build you up. When a giraffe is born, it comes out front hooves first, then its head, then its body, and then it falls down about 10 feet and lands on its back on the ground. That little baby giraffe struggles and wobbles and gets up on those skinny legs and stands up on on its feet and it's just kind of wobbling around. And while it's wobbling around, its mother sticks out its foot and kicks it, knocks it back on the ground. So it struggles and wobbles and gets back on those legs again and stands back up, and guess what mama does? Kicks him again, knocks him over on his back. And he keeps struggling to get back up, and every time he gets up, she kicks him again. He's got to be laying there thinking, what is she doing? What is wrong with her? You know what she's doing? She's developing that little giraffe to be able to survive in the jungle. Maybe you're looking up at your heavenly father today and saying, what is he doing? Why is it 
that it seems every time I get up on my feet and I'm kind of wobbling, I think this may work out, he, he seems to knock me down with no, more problems. Why is he allowing those problems in my life? Would you please understand that he is developing you so that you can handle this jungle world that you live in. Romans chapter 5 and verse 3 says, Tribulation brings about patience. Did you get that? Tribulation, troubles, problems bring about patience. And patience brings about proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. God doesn't develop patience in you by taking you out of your problems. He develops patience in you by taking you through your problems. And so if you're here today and you feel like a baby giraffe, you're wobbling, you're weak, you're getting knocked down by difficult problems, keep trusting Him. He knows what He's doing. And He is developing patience in you. And that is how, in the world, you're to be different. Let's stand as we close in praise to the Lord.